Richard Radio begins in three, two, one. At our church, we have people repeat a prayer who want to place their faith in Christ. Jesus did all the hard part. He did everything but pray your prayer. I'm going to ask you just to pray with me right now. Just say these words with me. You can say those words every day for the rest of your life and die and be separated from God. The scripture does not say that Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel and said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who would like to ask me into their hearts? It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. A united States Senate, 400 years in the making. This is Wretched Radio. Perhaps you heard there's a new dress code or lack thereof in the United States Senate. Thanks to one John Fetterman who likes to wear shorts and hoodies. That's an odd combo. Shorts and hoodies on the floor of the United States Senate. Our fearless leader, Chuck Schumer. Oh, 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 oh. Even... Even sarcasm hurts putting those words together. He decided, forget it. We won't have a dress code at all. It was never formally enshrined in Senate rules, but it was always understood. Hey, we're kind of doing important things here. And whilst I could launch into a salvo about how pastors dress for Sunday morning service, I'm going to resist that temptation. Why? Well, because... Church work is actually more important. Wait a second, that actually would be a reason to go on a salvo about church attire. But I'm going to resist that temptation to take a look and try to understand why is it that our Senate is going low? Because it is. We all understand this. You go to a wedding or a funeral, you get dressed up, you pull out that suit and tie. Why? Because, well... It's kind of a big deal. Church should be that way too. But I'm not going to digress and go into a diatribe about church attire. Instead, one must ask, what is going on? Why would the United States Senate, what used to be esteemed a, an august body of leaders, now going casual? Like the rest of the nation, not only is the attire and the apparel going down, 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 so too is the language. Quote from John Fetterman, if those, I can't use the word that he chose. It's a really nasty, coarse word. If those bleeps in the house stop trying to shut our government down and fully support Ukraine, then I'll save democracy by wearing a suit on the Senate floor next week. Now, his dripping sarcasm aside, and believe me, I know it when I see it. What does this tell us? What does this tell us about not just John Fetterman, but Chuck Schumer and all all of the liberals who are quite content to say, forget about the dress code. There's something going on. There is more to this than what meets the eye. Please note in 2019, the attire for women in the Senate was relaxed after then Senate Rules Committee Chairman Amy Klobuchar, state of Minnesota, pushed for a change so women could wear sleeveless dresses. Senator Tina Smith defended Fetterman's casual attire, replying on X slash Twitter, seriously? Your beep 
about Senate dress code when House Republicans are about to drive the federal government off a cliff. Talk about disgraceful. More coarse language. Don't know if you happen to see there was a hearing and a woman was speaking. This, this made its way around the Twitter sphere and somehow I happen to see it. Don't usually see stuff like that. I suspect Bart sent it to me. And it was a woman, kind of a Candace Owen type, who was talking about the nasty books that we are somehow wanting our children to read in our government-funded education centers known as public school libraries. And she said, well, we don't, we don't call it discrimination. We don't call it censorship when we don't put playboys into public school libraries. And then she said the keywords, that is just common sense. B-I-N-G-O. There's the problem. There is a lack of common sense. When Senator Kennedy reads aloud sexually graphic books found in school libraries, and somehow a group of individuals wearing actually formal business attire somehow found a way to say, well, we don't want to be censoring now, do we? To defend this, it is so disgusting. These books, woofta. I, 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 I don't encourage you to read it. Uh, take my word for it. It is unbelievably nasty graphic. And these individuals, the Illinois Attorney General, defending it. What's going on? I would suggest to you it's been four to five hundred years in the making. Let me share with you from Fetterman's attire movement in the Senate. A number of Republicans, practically all of them, but three, including Josh Howley. That was a surprise, actually. The Senate is a place of honor and tradition where we conduct the business of the American people, debating policies which impact every American family. Hey, Jimmy, you know, that would be like akin to a pastor and the families in his congregation. Oh, yeah. That just thought just ran through my mind <laughs> like that. It's where we make the most grave decisions imaginable. Battle, war, the world watches, and we must protect the sanctity of that place at all costs. It disrespects the institution we serve. We undersign members of the United States Senate, express our supreme disappointment and disapproval, and urge you to reverse this misguided action. I doubt that's going to happen. Why? Because this has been 400 years in the making. The deconstruction that has become so popular in evangelical circles is not leading the way. It's simply following in the wake of a society, a civilization that has sought now for well over 400 years to undermine reality, beliefs, morality. Let me take you on a little bit of a philosophical history tour. Going back to the age of the Enlightenment was reading John Frame's A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. And I couldn't help but hear again, just like, just like we maybe remember Teddy Roosevelt. We had a conversation about this last week, that Teddy Roosevelt was a rough rider. He was an individualistic American. He was the Marlboro man of the early 20th century. 
And perhaps unwittingly, maybe intentionally, history will tell perhaps, or eternity certainly will, was he trying to contribute to the autonomous self? Don't know, but he did. That it's all about me. That it's all about breaking the shackles. Furthermore, his Protestant religion progressively became liberal as German liberalism grew in this country. And in other words, he was following the zeitgeist of both the church and the culture. And this has been going on now for centuries. From John Frame, the Protestant Reformation raised the possibility of a more consistently biblical way of thinking. But before that could get much underway, a convulsion in the intellectual world occurred that every thinker needed to take account of. The event in the mid-17th century was the rebirth of a pure form of secular thought, similar to the birth of Greek philosophy in 600 B.C., in other words, this is now the time, and, and we've known this, this is now the time when secularism said, we, we, we're not so sure about God and the Bible. And this was a very mm, mm, productive season of apologetics. Why do we see so much of our apologetical systems being founded in about the 1600s. It's because of the assault of secularism. And it was the assault of a new way of looking at God, the church, and the Bible called liberalism. It began in Descartes' determination to doubt everything that he had been taught, everything he thought he knew. Does that, does that have a little inkling of postmodernism? Yeah, it did. Postmodernism didn't come out of nowhere. And that skepticism included scripture and church tradition. Like the early Greek thinkers, Descartes sought to replace the tradition with a new system of knowledge. Here it is. Based on human autonomous reason alone. In other words, it was the germ of the autonomous self. Casting off those shackles. What would be a word that perhaps would speak to the vernacular of the peasantry? Oh, yeah, deconstruction. That's what was happening. In the 1600s, deconstructionism had begun. And we would do well to recognize that because we have a tendency to think, well, how did this happen? Who flipped the switch on Western civilization? Well, the switch has been thrown now for a long time. There have been long efforts to try to undermine biblical theology morality, even genuine reason, even though it was the age of reason, the age of enlightenment. Why? Because the Bible and Christianity were so dark and we needed humanism to rescue us. Why is it that the Senate decided to cast off decorum? That's <laughs> because we've been busy trying to cast off pretty much everything for centuries. This is Wretched Radio.
Like the Pointer Sisters, I am so excited and I just can't hide it. The Masters Academy International is embarking on a bold new program to distribute Bibles internationally. There are oh so many wretched people who love to give to ministries who are giving out Bibles. And the Masters Academy International is going to start doing just that in the Philippines. But they don't want to give out just any Bible to just anybody. They're going to give away John MacArthur Study Bibles to Christians who cannot afford them in a local Bible teaching church. Can you imagine the impact? How much do you love your MacArthur Study Bible? For $25, you could put a Bible into the hands of a believer in the Philippines. I'll do the math. It's not tricky. Four Bibles, $100. Maybe you could commit to giving a Bible a month to a believer in the Philippines. Please visit wretched.org slash Bible, wretched.org slash Bible to join the Master's Academy International. So, have you ever wondered what happens when you take two colossal Christian personalities like Ray Comfort and Todd Friel and you put them at the same table while they break bread? <laughs> well, they're not going to start a food fight or a bakery or anything like that, though that would be pretty cool. No, it's actually the latest Breaking Bread where you'll meet the real Ray Comfort. If you've ever wondered if Ray Comfort is really that kind or if he's just saving it all up for the camera, well, here's your backstage pass to find out. Join us September the 28th, that's this Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, exclusively on the Wretched Network YouTube channel. Mark your calendar, tell your grandma, and probably also your pet fish, because let's be honest, they need the gospel too. We'll see you this Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Wretched Network YouTube channel. Be there or be a little less informed about the real Ray Comfort. Busy, busy, busy. Last year, Preborn Ministries provided over 92,000 ultrasounds, 54,000 babies were saved, 69 ultrasound machines were placed, 10,000 people responded to the gospel. Preborn Ministries, very busy, saving babies, saving souls. Would you please consider partnering with Preborn Ministries? $28 per ultrasound, five ultrasounds, $140. Yes, they are expensive, but they save lives. And Preborn Ministries uses good equipment with trained specialists, which is why the success rates are so staggeringly high at saving lives with preborn. Please consider supporting preborn at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. Important dates in Christian history. 405 AD. After 23 years of work, translating from Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, Jerome completes the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible that becomes the standard for the next 1,000 years. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Can we learn anything positive from philosophy? No, this is Wretched Radio. Can we learn anything negative from philosophy? We sure can. We can understand why it is that our current culture thinks the way that it does. Why the undermining of tradition? Why the undermining of values, morals, reason, decorum in the United States Senate? And I'm not going to mention churches, too, because I'm just sticking with the headline. 
we see a movement that has been in the making now for centuries. This ain't nothing new. It's Has it become more extreme? Yes, it has. Because progressivism, the invasion of darkness, it has been progressive. Well, not, you know, not like making it positive advancements, helping, but it's been progressive in that it just keeps taking a little bite, taking a little bite, taking a little bite, taking a little bite, and it's like a J-curve. Eventually, you're going to get to the point where, boom, now they're just eating the entire carcass. Big chunks, not nibbles anymore. We've seen that if you take a look at, at history and the desire of people to cast off authority, that's how it's always begun that the authority, the people in power, the concept of oppressor is nothing new, especially when it comes to philosophy, that people who are in power, they set the terms. And this is a casting off of those restraints, those shackles, so that we can be our autonomous selves. And it has been going on since the age of the Enlightenment. By the way, Harrison Ford demonstrates there's not a whole lot we can learn from philosophy. He was asked in an interview, apparently he's going to be in one of these superhero movies. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad to see that they're still making lots of superhero movies because there's been such a dearth and such a need for more of these predictable, utterly banal movies. I'm sorry. Did I? Say that out loud, that could have been worse. It could have been about church attire. The point is Harrison Ford was being interviewed by The Hollywood Reporter. And he was asked if one of his majors in college, being philosophy, has stayed with him. Quote, now you track this, quote, yeah, there's a Protestant theologian named Paul Tillich. Well, there's a bad place to start. Who wrote that if you have trouble with the word God, Take whatever is central and most meaningful to your life and call that God. In other words, you're a God maker. You're, well, it's sort of like the Mormon church. <laughs> it actually is. You just determine who, who your deity is. What's important to you? There's your God. Have the commandments ever been more relevant? My mother was Jewish, my father was Catholic, and I was raised a Democrat. My moral purpose was being a Democrat with the big D. But it didn't apply to a political point of view so much as it applied to nature. I didn't have any religious construct, but I think nature and God are the same thing. That's a religious construct. The mysterious origin of life, science tells us how it happened, and prophecy tells us another story. That sounds like Jordan Peterson. I found that everything in nature, the complexity, biodiversity, and symbiotic relationship is the same thing other people attribute to God. That's Harrison Ford, philosophical, making up his own system. And that is exactly what philosophy has been about for 400 plus years. Back to John Frame, a history of Western philosophy and theology. Such was the period from 1600 to 1800 called the Enlightenment, the age of reason. From a Christian perspective, it was a time of darkness rather than enlightenment. Because along the way, something really major happened. Another convulsed intellectual change after which Christian thought would never be the same. The birth of liberal theology. Um, Paul Tillich, incidentally, 
one of the chief proponents of liberal theology, if you can even call it theology, so unchristian, late 17th century, many professing Christians adopted the modern style of philosophizing and reconstructed their whole theology so as to agree with its assumptions. That is exactly what Lecrae and the likes are doing. There's a bunch of stuff in the Bible I don't want. The God that is written on the pages of Holy Writ needs to be rewritten to conform himself into my image. How do I want my God to behave, think, be, and act? I get to do that. That's what deconstructionism does. And that deconstructing has been going on, and it has been promoted courtesy of not just humanistic thinking, but liberal Protestant philosophizing, because that's what it is. John Frame writes, the movement began with a new way of reading the Bible, not as the word of God, but as a merely human document containing errors as well as religious wisdom. Cool. It's like reading Confucius, only not as authoritative. They came to believe that they must reject not only the authority of Scripture, but also its supernatural content, especially its gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where did the Jesus Seminar come from? What decade was that? Were they 70s, the 60s, 70s? The, would you Google Jesus Seminar on the Wikipedia machine? And would, would you like to know how old my laptop computer is that I write books on? I can't even get to Wikipedia anymore. My system is so outdated. I can't get the updates needed to go to Wikipedia. Hey, wait, maybe that's actually a blessing. Jesus Seminar, by basically casting lots, you using a silly marble system to determine, do we really think the walking on water thing should be in the Bible? Nope, out it goes. Do we really think the feeding of 5,000? Out it goes. It was a denial of the supernatural. It ain't nothing new. It's a culmination. Well, is it the culmination? Are we there yet? Probably not until we somehow turn the Bible into a book of pure licentious, perhaps teaching or encouragement or promotion. Maybe we haven't gotten to the bottom of the barrel, but we're getting close. Why it's been going on for forever. Jimmy, Jesus Seminar. Since 1985. Like I said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just misheard. There were various doctrinal battles. This is going back now to the 1700s. Various doctrinal battles between Calvinists, Arminians, Lutherans, Catholics. But all parties to these conflicts, even the Socinians, when you think Socinian, just think a, a just a mash, just a garbage bag full of historically heretical theologies. All of these debates appealed, even, even the Socinians appealed to the final authority of Scripture. Eventually, some groups became known as the Cambridge Platonists. What's a Cambridge Platonist? Well, the school, but also Platonism, which is a dualism, which, by the way, Platonism didn't get introduced in the 1700s by German liberals. And Platonism really was a part I would say 1400s, the Neoplatonism that arose. You see the sculpture work everywhere you go in Italy, courtesy of the Platonic Medici family. Nevertheless, everybody was still appealing to the Bible. 
But the Cambridge Platonists said, well, maybe we should be relying more on human reason, kind of a neutral arbiter in all of these disagreements. They were called latitudinarian. They give big latitude, if you will, to everything to avoid talking clearly, having defined positions. And they were edging toward liberalism. But they didn't deny the authority of Scripture, which is the mark of liberalism. And deism then popped out of this system of thinking. That uh, we start to blend. We bring in reason, and before you knew it, the scales tipped to human reason. You can thank people like John Locke for those contributions. Liberal theology is a philosophical movement, a product of the rebirth of secular philosophy in the 17th century and an extension of the claim of, can you guess what word is next? A claim of autonomy from philosophers to theologians. The word autonomous appears regularly in any historical treatment of liberalism and enlightenment thinking the age of reason. Why? Because that was a push. That was, that was, that was, that was the secular philosophy and the liberal philosophies inside of the church promoting this casting off of what? It was either Catholicism or Protestantism. And so we'll just call that Christianity. And that's what we're seeing today of that philosophy, a continuation of that liberalism. And there's a lesson that we can learn from this. Did you catch it? The authority of Scripture. Contemporary philosophers who say the last thing we Christians should do is say, thus saith the Lord. I would argue that is precisely why we're in the boat that we're sinking in. Instead, we need to be Bible quoters. And when the world says, well, those are just mythological stories, it doesn't matter. Take out your sword and wield it. Why? Because it's the only thing, read 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, that can cut through this nonsensical, human, philosophical reasoning. This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched News Break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Our first story today dives into the ongoing debate surrounding gender roles within religious institutions, specifically this time Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. A former employee claims that she was denied a promotion based on her gender, which sparked a lawsuit against the institution. Moody, on the other hand, argues that its position reflects its interpretation of biblical teachings. Yeah, and everyone else who understands how to interpret the Bible. Anyway, it's this is where things get dicey because on the one hand, you have federal laws that clearly prohibit sex discrimination, and that's a real thing. But on the other hand, you have religious institutions who say, no, 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 we have deeply held convictions that don't abide by societal norms. Is it a conundrum? Those of us that understand scripture and our religious freedom say no, it's not a conundrum at all. Well, in a huge victory for pro-life free speech, charges have been dropped against Isabel Vaughn Spruce, who was arrested late last year by British police for praying silently outside of an abortion facility. Yeah, because she was making such a ruckus and disturbing the peace in such a way where she had to just be hushed up. Yeah, silent prayer 
only bothers people who absolutely hate God. No other way to look at that one. Speaking of controversial topics, I really don't even like talking about this one, but um, Jessica Burgess, I know you recognize the name if you keep up with any type of news. She's from Norfolk, Nebraska. Her teenage daughter is Celeste Burgess, and they committed this horrifying act last October after administering abortion medication at home. The duo killed the fetus of Celeste's baby and then set it on fire. Jessica Burgess, who purchased the lethal substances online, was sentenced to only two years behind bars. Two years. Not only is that a slap on the wrist, it's a slap in the face of every pro-life American, of every human being. Not only is the act disgusting, but the sentence that she received for the act is just as disgusting, if not even more so. But what's bad is politics surrounding moral issues. And now to Nigeria, where attacks on Christians by herdsmen have escalated. Recently, one Christian has been reported dead. Several others have sustained injuries. And, and the situation in Nigeria, as you know, is not new. It's been brewing for years. And, and as I've told you multiple times, Nigeria is inching its way up to become one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. And so all of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and all over the world need our constant, fervent prayer. And that has been today's Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Books of the Bible. First and Second Kings relate the history of Israel from Solomon through the division of Israel into two kingdoms to the destruction of both kingdoms. Though Israel and Judah and their kings were often unfaithful, God continually calls His people to repentance through His prophets. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Ha- Happy anniversary! This is Wretched Radio. September 21st, 200 years ago, Joseph Smith claimed to be led by the angel Moroni in Palmyra, New York, where he discovered tablets, ancient golden tablets located in a nearby hill. And so it is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints starting out as a group that was considered outside of just common American civilization and practices due to their admittance of polygamous marriages into the church and promotion thereof. Honestly, they were always deemed outside of American Christianity, whether it was Protestant, Evangelical, Catholic. The Mormon church was always esteemed to be cultic. Now, you got to be careful because the word cult tends to be overused a lot. We have a tendency to think Jim Jones. Well, organizations can be cultic without people drinking Kool-Aid. They can have sociological markers. They can have theological identifiers. They, they can have society indicators. They're just, they're just not acting like everybody else. And it doesn't mean that everybody is lined up to be to kill themselves via a trough of grape Kool-Aid, but you can still be cultic. And so it was. The Mormon church was esteemed to be a cult, but perhaps you've noticed there have been significant efforts to change that. 
This is something that we've noticed and remarked on here on Wretched Radio for a long time. It really is perhaps most obvious when you hear a Mormon spokesperson call themselves Christian. They never did that. You see, we were apostate. The New Testament, oof, it needed to be corrected. We needed the Book of Mormon, the pearl of great price. We needed new revelation. We needed new apostles leading the church and speaking truth from God. And they didn't like to be identified as Christians, but now they do. Something's changed. Do you ever do a Google? Even for a Bible verse, do you know who is most likely to come up first? It ain't Bible Gateway. It ain't Blue Letter Bible. It's the Mormon church. They got plenty of money to spend on on SEO and making sure that they pop up when virtually anything religious is searched for. Stumbled onto an article from Time. That's right, Time did a pretty reasonable review of Mormonism, specifically focusing on how it's trying to go mainstream. Because it is, and you know what that means, Pretty soon we're going to have Mormons and Protestants together, just like the movement for Protestants and Catholics a number of decades ago. There were a number of Protestants, including Chosen, who wanted to say, we can have harmony together with Roman Catholics. How long will it be before you see evangelicals and Mormons together? It won't be, won't be long. Bound to happen. Why? Because they're changing language. They are changing the way they present themselves. Are those ideologies and doctrines still on their books? Of course they are. They haven't gone anywhere. They're just not as out as they once were. There are 17 million members across the globe. Charles Dickens wrote that Joseph Smith's true audacity was in claiming to have communion with angels in an age of railways. In other words, Charles Dickens was what, was, what was he manifesting with that statement? Enlightenment thinking, the age of reason, science. Look, we got trains. And you're talking about visions from angels and digging up golden tablets in a hill? Come on. That isn't enlightened. That's not rational. That's Charles Dickens for you. After decades of slow, uneasy, but steady cultural assimilation, Mormons appeared on the brink of cultural acceptance by the 70s. But there was an upswing in evangelical anti-Mormonism that threatened those advances. Mormons were forced once again to adapt. They have done that on polygamy, on their attitude toward black people. They accomplished this by framing their faith's story, including the Book of Mormon, as one of Christian sincerity. They announced a subtitle to the Book of Mormon meant to cement their Christian affiliation. Here it is. Another Testament of Jesus Christ. What was That was a marketing maneuver. Leaders even reformatted the church's logo so that the words Jesus Christ were far larger than the rest. What do the Mormons believe about Jesus? Do they believe he's a God? Yes, they do. Just not the God. He's a created deity who has become a God. And if you follow the statutes of Mormonism, you can become a God too. I think there was a movie called The Godmaker, something like that, a number of years ago. 
because they recognize that's what Mormonism really teaches, that you can become a god. You can be your own deity. You can have your own planet. You can have a lot of wives. You can make spirit babies. That's Mormonism. And they've tried to mainstream themselves, and it has been a decades-long endeavor. The most successful form of improved collaboration was in the political sphere. Oh, we've never seen this before, have we? Starting with their opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s, then they were opposed to same-sex marriage in the 90s and 2000s, although I think they've changed their tune on that. Latter-day Saints formed firm alliances with evangelical groups that found their truth claims blasphemous. Politics does create strange theological bedfellows, doesn't it? And it really should cause us to ask, am I willing to compromise my stand on a cultic group for political expediency? And maybe just not make such a big deal of it? Mitt Romney, he ran for president 2008, didn't go so well. But the next four years, once exposed to national attention, the vehement anti-Mormon sentiment seemed neutered or drowned out by cultural fascination. Dubbed the Mormon Moment, 2012 featured a wave of media obsession with the faith in the form of Broadway musicals. Wasn't that, wasn't that Dylan Mulvaney? He was in the Book of Mormon, I think. Do I remember that right? <laughs> well, didn't you know that he was trying to become famous before... I the did. infamy of his gender switcheroo. And that, that's where I learned about it. Yeah, there you go. Dubbed the Mormon moment, uh, Broadway musicals, television hits, and a successful LDS public relations campaign titled, I'm a Mormon. Do you remember those commercials? I do. A mom, she's pushing kids on the swing. Oh, I'm a Mormon. What, what was this? This was a paid-for marketing campaign to try to cast off the cultic label that they so rightly deserve. Fast forward. The Latter-day Saint Church has continued to be repackaged to appear less intrusive to mainstream Christians. Russell Nelson, their recent prophet, encouraged the media to no longer use the Mormon nickname because it distracted from their Christian message, which for about 170 years they said, no, 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 we're not Christian. He also ceased their long production of the Hill Kumora pageant. I'm not familiar with this one. Thousands of people gathered each summer to witness a dramatic reproduction of Joseph Smith receiving the gold plates on the New York hillside where he claimed to have found them. So it's their own version of a passion play. That's a goner. And the church rapidly increased its construction of temples, most of which no longer feature the, feature the angel Moroni. Isn't that interesting? Once a feature in the logo on top of churches, gone. After two centuries of heated battles with Christian contemporaries, Smith's successors have learned how to frame these fundamentals in less threatening ways. The Book of Mormon, no longer a correction to an apostate world, but a supplement to the Christian canon his followers are not separated from Babylon, but fellow travelers in a world of pilgrims. And so it is, they celebrate their 200th anniversary and they continue to grow. What can we learn? 
One, theology still matters. Christology is crucial. And we need to, yep, indoctrinate our children. That essential theology is the difference between heaven and hell. Two, we need to understand that soon there will be evangelicals that will try to persuade us, well, it's close enough. Look at all the good things we could do together. After all, we do need to win elections and stave off this darkening progressivism that is after our children. Maybe we should take a look at how it is that they grow. I think that there are, have been two successful keys for Mormon growth. One, love bombing. Now they have, we should do it. We should be the people that are known as those are the nicest people. Two, they still ring doorbells. They still go knocking on people's domiciles. Maybe just maybe we could learn those lessons from the Mormons. This is Wretched Radio. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa and the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Thanks for listening to Wretched Radio today. And we also thank you, our friends who have ventured through the aisles, the digital aisles of Wretched.org. You're not just buying a book or a video. You're actually investing in truth, wisdom, and the kingdom of God. But listen, why stop at the checkout? How about joining us as an ongoing monthly gospel partner? Because it's a way to go deeper and to become part of something more than just a simple store transaction. It's about standing firm in the faith, reaching millions of people all over the world. But we need your help to do that. The gospel isn't something we just consume. It's something that we share and we need your help sharing it together. There's no sales pitch here. This is just an honest invitation to become a part of a mission that's changing lives all over the world. All of the details on how you do just that is at wretched.org slash donate. Wretched, amazing grace, amazing gospel. Confession, normally numbers aren't my favorite subject, but these numbers make me happy. MediShare is affordable biblical health sharing with twice the satisfaction rate of MediShare members versus traditional health insurance plans. The average family saves $500 per month. Over $3 billion worth of medical bills have been shared 
among MediShare members, which, by the way, MediShare has been around for a quarter of a century. Don't forget, telehealth is available at MediShare, and it will take you two minutes to receive a quote to see what you and your family could be saving every single month with MediShare. Affordable, biblical health sharing. Please spend a very worthwhile two minutes at 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE. Attributes of God. Do you think God explodes with anger when you sin? Remember the word impassibility. It means that God is without passion. His affections, such as wrath, anger, and love, are always foreknown, voluntary, and controlled. And they are always consistent with God's unchanging nature. And His wrath has been settled on the cross. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Thinking about leaving your church, are you? This is Wretched Radio. Last Wednesday, surprise, got a text from one Mike Fabares. You know him from Focal Point Ministries, Compass Bible Church, Compass Bible Institute. Sends me a text stating, hey, I'm in town. Want to get together and do something? And my knee-jerk reaction, of course, was you better believe we're going to do something with a big old brain like yours. We're going to work you like a Grand Canyon mule. So he came up to the northern suburbs from Atlanta, which ain't no easy ask. Woo! The traffic. And he came into our studios on Friday. And we spent about five hours chatting, mostly about church, the local church, because he's a churchman. He loves the local church. He's been pastoring a local church for, I believe, over three decades now. And we spent a lot of time talking about when it is appropriate to leave a church. And I found his answers somewhat surprising and yet very illuminating and very helpful. Because we see these days, it is a trend for people to just vamoose from their church. They just hightail it and do the rather uncourteous thing called ghosting their pastor. That's a bad societal trend, isn't it? Where you can just block somebody from your social media. You don't need to put up with their voicemails. You just block them. You cancel them. You ghost them. And that mentality has made its way into the church. Just leave. Be gone for whatever it's worth before we get to a laundry list of issues where you might or might not have biblical permission to leave your church. Please note, I actually watched a man in pastoral ministry reveal a little bit of his heart. I asked him how it felt when somebody ghosts you. They've been a member perhaps for years and then they're just gone. And he didn't hesitate, but he said it in a tone that indicated this man has been hurt by many people who have ghosted him. It's person. It's not just business. It's personal because shepherds actually care. When I, when I asked Mike about it, he said, there's nothing more painful. It's like a dagger to your heart. You call me two o'clock in the morning, I'll be at your hospital because I love you and I care about you. And then they just go. They don't even say a word as if the relationship thing. And it devastates these godly men. 
With that as our backdrop, let us consider carefully when we should leave the church. This is not going to be a holistic discourse tackling every single scenario. There are some general principles that need to be applied carefully and thoughtfully with your current pastor. You say, but he's the reason I'm leaving. Mike Fabares, I'm going to paraphrase for him, would say, too bad. Talk to him anyway. Don't leave without talking to the pastor. Don't not communicate at all. Even, even if it's to say, I don't really want to get into it because of some, there could be particulars, but at least communicate. You won't be showing up ever again. Talk to the person. So the general rules that Mike offered, I think the obvious would be theological. Somebody becomes a heretic, you, you can just skedaddle. You, you, can, you should still tell them, I'm leaving because of your false teaching. It would be even better if you sat down with them to say, why are you teaching this? Do you know that you're actually espousing a view that has been deemed heretical now for centuries by the church? Talk was the main stressor. Don't just go ask him. I've noticed some changes in your theology. Am I right? Do I understand that correctly? Who knows what you might learn? The second big general category that he gave that I thought was fascinating was relationships. He said, there's, there's just some times when it's probably just best. Again, not without communication, not without working through it, but there are some dynamics that just it would be better if there was something that happened in the church that was just bad and you got two families that were affected by it and potentially there could have been a victim involved and the resolution was perhaps not satisfactory to both parties and there they are together. Or it, it could be something. Somebody gets divorced. And one, of, one of them gets remarried and now the three of them are going to church. Not together, but they bump into each other. Maybe just maybe based on some of the facts, ma'am, it might just be a good idea to pass one of the parties off to a biblically sound church sister. But then I started to say, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? I'll do my best to parrot Mike Fabares. Can you leave a church when you're not being fed? And his answer was, well, you can't. Supplement. Do your own study. Talk to the pastor about it. Ask him why he preaches at the level he preaches. Because he might have some really valid considerations that you and I are not aware of. There's a thousand things swirling around every sermon. And it's the pastor that's trying to juggle all of those balls. And Mike Fabares said, that's just not valid enough. Now, not with biblical authority, you can't. What if they're going seeker-sensitive? Um, what permission do you have from the Bible to go? You say, but I hate that stuff, right? Could it be that you get to the point where it impedes your worship? And I ask that specifically, too, about worship music. The music has changed. We used to be biblical and have pipe organs and sing classic hymns. Or so think some of us. And now they're doing this the stuff. They're not doing the Hill song and the Bethel, but they're doing this music I don't like. Could it be that it gets to the point where it so impedes your worship that it perhaps is best? I think he answered pastorally, yes. Yes, it is. 
But even his deliberation on it indicates maybe we need to be a little slower in making the decision to leave a body of believers. And as we were making our way through this list, I couldn't help but feel a little convicted myself. We sure do have a consumer mentality, don't we? If everything isn't exactly the way that we want it, I'm going to go looking for something different. I think we all have that propensity due to the fact that we're baked in our culturally driven consumer mindset society. No kids programs. Can I go? And his answer was no, because kids shouldn't be leading the decision. Your job to train up your children. And if you think that there should be kids programs, then get going, get started on it. We start working on them, start doing some evangelism, bring people with families and you'll have the kids program that you want. But Mike was basically, no, not a good reason. Sermons are too long or too short. Nope. The people are kind of chilly there. Nope. Down the street, they have more people in my demographic than they do here. Nope. Not a valid reason to leave. Be married. Who was, was it? Oh, boy. Was it Josh Harris? What, a, what an unraveling and deconstructed mess that was. Did Josh Harris write the book, Stop Dating the Church? Yes. Marry your local church. Be in it. And the illustration that Mike kept giving that is so, wow. Do you remember? Okay, Jimmy, we'll see if we can make this, this illustration come to life. Friday night, Saturday night in your home. Did your family gather around the television to watch stuff? Saturday night. Well, when it, where, where uh, was family TV time? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. All right. Who determined what was on the TV? <laughs> the kids. Did they? Yeah. Okay, they you're not you're not helping me at all with this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, I I remember when I was okay. I can. I'm thinking like second grade, and it was Friday night, Saturday night. Well, Saturday night, I believe, it was All-Star Wrestling at 6. <laughs> that was a good night. And then you had like the Carol Burnett stuff and all of those shows. But they weren't my choosing. That, that, was, that was grandparents. That was parents that chose those things. And maybe the volume was cranked way too high. And then Sunday night came and it was Lawrence Welk. But I didn't leave my family. Did I like Lawrence Welk? Nothing about it was thrilling to her. But you don't leave your family, not over things like that. And your church is your family. Now, to be to be clear and to be fair, Mike was pastoral. He said, look, there are some things where it just might make some sense, but they should be done deliberately with a lot of consideration and consulting with your elders. What about bad decision? They don't spend the money the way that I would have them do. There's no transparency. Well, those could be indicators of bigger problems, but on the face of those things, well, you've got to have conversations before you should just pull the plug. In other words, talk to them. Might you be able to leave for any of these reasons? Sure, I suppose. But before you go, think long and hard about it because your church isn't just a place where we go to visit. And if it happens to tickle our fancy, we'll stick around. But when it doesn't, we just pack up our Bibles and go? You don't do that with your family. Well, at least we didn't used to. The kids these days seem to be doing that. Think about your family. 
And remember, your pastor, even if you're annoyed with him right now, he loves you profoundly. Don't ghost your pastor in church. And until tomorrow, go serve your king.